Good morning. It's great to see you guys. Thank you for being here at City Church this morning. Thank you for those of you who are visiting with us today, maybe for the first time. We're really glad to have you guys. And also want to welcome those of you who are joining us this morning by our app or by our podcast. We're delighted to have you with us whatever, in whatever manner that, you, uh, that you're able to join us. Uh, we're here every Sunday. I started to say, I, actually I started to say that we're here every Sunday. We're here most Sundays, but as Sean said, next Sunday we're not going to be here. And the reason we're not going to be here is that we're going to do something called Be the Church Sunday. You know, sometimes we get so comfortable just coming to church, doing the routine uh, every Sunday morning. But we take a couple of Sundays a year and we do this thing that we call Be the Church. And what we're challenging you to do is to go serve somebody. Instead of doing church next Sunday, be the church next Sunday. Go find somebody that you could serve. Maybe you could wash their car, mow their yard, uh, bring them something to eat. Uh, take them out to eat. I'd visit someone in the hospital. I don't know what it is, but some way that you could go be the church uh, next Sunday. reason we do this, there's a couple of reasons we do this, but one of the major reasons we do this <clears throat> is that we, one of our core values here at City Church is uh, a bias for action, a bias for action. We want to be a church that embodies uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't just talk about it, but that we do it. And so that's why we're going to do that next Sunday. So go be the church. And then on the 19th, Come back here. We'll be back here on the 19th, and i got something special planned for you uh, on the 19th. Can't wait for you to experience that. also want to mention, some of you guys know that we're in the process of um, purchasing a building downtown, and that building is called St. John's United Church of Christ right now. Uh, we're in the process of buying that. I just want to give you a little update on that. Uh, we have gone back to St. John's. Uh, we've had all of our inspections done. We've got all of our reports in. We've gone back to St. John's and said, okay, you've got, you know, there's a, there's a roof problem. Part of the roof has a problem where, where, that needs to be replaced. And we're asking them if they would pay for half of that and then we'll pay for the other half of it. And uh, we should have an answer on that within the next couple of weeks. And then after that, uh, barring any major problems, uh, I think that we will be heading into the, uh, into the final stretch of actually making that a reality. So be praying for it. Things can always blow up still in the process, but do be praying for that. We would appreciate it. Um, I'm wearing blue today. I don't know if you noticed that, but I'm wearing blue because I'm blue about Kentucky losing last night. Man, oh man. <clears throat> It's a very divisive thing to be talking about this morning. I recognize that, but I am sad. Um, it's Easter Sunday, and here everyone is. Families together, you know, for the first time, perhaps in a long time. Um, beautiful spring Sunday outside. Little children thinking about Easter egg hunts uh, after church. And in all that joy and in all that goodness and in all of that warmth... I'm going to take a moment before we look into the scriptures. I'm going to make a couple of comments about one of the most divisive topics that I could possibly speak on. And you're thinking, great, Jeff, what a way to celebrate Easter. But I think I have to say something about this. These past couple of weeks have been very hard on the state of Indiana, and uh, I think for many Christians, and I think also for the LGBT community in light of the passing of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and all of the controversy that has surrounded that. I think it's tragic that extremists on both sides of this, of this issue have been allowed to shape the debate on this, manner, uh, on this issue in a manner that has further separated evangelical Christianity and the LGBT community. 
Look, yes, there are issues that we differ over, no question. There, there are issues that we differ over, and that's not likely to change. But I also think that there is more common ground than extremists on both sides of the issue would have people think. I think it's important to remember that there are sincere people in the LGBT community who care deeply about religious freedom. And I think it's also uh, important to remember that there are sincere people in the Christian community who care deeply about civil rights. I have to tell you that I'm troubled about things that I see in both camps, on both sides of this issue. I think that there are some in the LGBT LGBT community uh, who've been hurt deeply by mean-spirited religious intolerance. But I also think that some of the people in that community are becoming increasingly intolerant themselves of anyone who dares to even politely disagree with them. On the other side of the issue, I have to tell you that I'm not at all convinced that Orthodox Christianity would require Christian bakers and florists and pizza restaurants and perhaps even photographers, although I recognize that photography is a unique uh, issue because it's protected under free speech. But I'm not at all convinced that Orthodox Christianity would force people, would cause people to refuse to serve gay weddings on the basis that doing so would be an endorsement of same-sex marriage. I'm not convinced of that. I think perhaps there are some on the Christian side that have made an issue about something that never needed to be made an issue of. And as a result, many in the LGBT community have become convinced that Christians are in an all-out war against their civil rights. I want to make it clear that the gospel is not a war against LGBT people and their civil rights. It's just not. I'm deeply troubled by this whole thing, and this past week, uh, I reached out to some key leaders in the local LGBT community in in an attempt to put something together. Not sure exactly what it's going to look like, but I've uh, reached out to them to try to put something together that would allow us to start a civil, uh, public dialogue in our community and perhaps heal some of the wounds between the LGBT community and the Christian community without ever compromising on what we believe. I don't want to compromise on what we believe, but I do want to build, I do want to, uh, I do want to build bridges, and I don't, do want to heal some unnecessary wounds. And I'll tell you more about this as details become available. You know, we're just trying to sketch this out right now, what it would look like, but I want you to know that's our intent, and I want you to know that we're working on it. And if you would, I'd just like to say a word of prayer about that this morning. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, it is the responsibility of the local church to be salt and light in the world that we live in. It is our responsibility to build a bridge to as many people as we can possibly build a bridge to for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of their lives. Lord, there are many in the LGBT community here in Evansville that have been hurt deeply, uh, some of them by religious intolerance, some of, it, some of them by mean-spirited people who would call themselves Christians. Lord, however you would use City Church to help build a bridge back to those people, pray that you would use us. Lord, we never want to compromise on the things that you have told us, uh, We don't want to compromise on the things that we believe. 
But by the same token, we do want to be examples, instruments of grace that demonstrate your love and mercy and compassion to people, all people, because all of us are broken in some way, shape, or form, all of us. So, Lord, we pray this now, this morning, in the name of Jesus Christ, who loves everyone, amen. A few years ago, an L.A. Times uh, columnist by the name of Gregory Rodriguez wrote a fascinating column uh, about the relentless optimism with which Americans tend to look at life. And he quoted an essayist uh, by the name of Barbara Ehrenreich, and he uh, he says this. He says, positive thinking may be a quintessential American activity associated with both individual and national success, but, he says, it is driven by a terrible insecurity, the fear of failure. Let me, let me read that to you again. It says, positive thinking may be a quintessential American activity associated with both individual and national success, but it is driven by a terrible insecurity, the fear of failure. And in this, this column, uh, he goes on and he argues that much of our optimism is not rooted in reality, but it's merely wishful thinking. And that he says that if there's anything that America needs now, in this moment in our history, it is a vigilant realism. Neither too much optimism, nor too much cynicism, but a firm grasp of the facts in all of their complexity. I was interested in that column Uh, Because I think that column gives us a little insight into one of the approaches that, frankly, many churches throughout America and even here in Evansville, some churches here in Evansville, uh, how they approach the celebration of Easter. They will argue, some of these churches will argue, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ never happened. But even though it never really happened, we can still look at it as a comforting symbol of hope. That on the other side of loss... This symbol that is called Easter. Uh, There's always newness and freshness on the other side of loss. And then on the other side of tragedy, the symbol of Easter says that there's always a new beginning. Now the problem is that when you think about it, this hope that they're offering as a result of just the symbol of Easter is really nothing more than wishful thinking. Uh, It's another example of American optimism that isn't grounded in reality. And what's interesting to me is that the Bible doesn't look at Easter like that at all. We are in, those of you who've been with us know this, we're in the second and uh, last week of a little mini-series that we've been calling More Than Symbols, The Cross and the Resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what you're going to see this morning is that the Bible approaches Easter and the hope that Easter offers in a far more intellectually honest manner than those that would say that Easter is just a symbol. The Bible says that Easter was an actual event in human history in which a power outside of nature and outside of history intervened to rescue humanity through the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, so the Bible, it grounds the reason for the hope of Christianity in actual reality, not in wishful thinking. But here's the thing. The Bible goes even further. It is intellectually honest enough, or uh, in the words of uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, who wrote the, the quote that the columnist used a little while ago, the Bible has such a vigilant realism that it says this. It says, if the resurrection didn't happen, 
don't bother talking about it as a symbol. If it didn't happen, get up out of your seats and leave now. Because Christianity has nothing to say to help anyone. And I want to show you what I mean this morning by having you, if you have a Bible, turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to look at uh, verse 17. I'm just going to read a little small section of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15 to you, and I want you to see this. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, don't worry about it. We'll put the verses up on the screen uh, for you to read, okay? And I'm just, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 17, I'm just going to read a small little section of this chapter, and then I'll make a few comments on it in the time that we have remaining, okay? Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, uh, that's a euphemism for death, those who have died, who believed in Christ, are lost if the resurrection didn't happen. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people, believers in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Okay? Uh, this realism uh, is one of the things that I appreciate so very much about Christianity, and it's, it's one of the things, frankly, that distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. Uh, you will not find... Any of the other holy books in any other world religion acknowledging that if its core doctrine is false, the rest of it is a sham. You're not going to find that anywhere else except here. Only Christianity will do this. It says, look, if this core doctrine of Christianity is false, the whole thing's a sham. The writer of 1 Corinthians is saying... If Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead in a historic event, we have hope. Uh, We have all the hope in the world. And it's a hope that will change the way that we look at ourselves and look at our lives. It'll change the way we look at our neighbors and their lives. It'll change the way we look at history. And it'll change the way that we look at everything. But if Christ was not raised from the dead bodily, don't bother talking about the symbol of it. Christianity then has nothing to say. It has no hope, no inspiration, no exhortations. Just ignore it. It's a sham. It's nothing more than wishful thinking that isn't grounded in any reality. You see, what I, what I want you guys to understand this morning is that there is an edge. There is a very sharp edge to the doctrine of the resurrection. And this sharp edge to this doctrine of resurrection divides. It always says, if the resurrection happened, then this. But if it didn't happen, then this. So you see, the the, the resurrection is the linchpin uh, of Christianity. And and what I want to do this morning is I just want to take a few minutes and I want to show you just two implications of this sharp edge of the doctrine of the resurrection. Two implications as we think it out. I want to show you two implications of this sharp edge of the doctrine of the resurrection. And and here's the first one. It's really pretty simple. It goes like this. The doctrine of the resurrection, the sharp edge of the doctrine of the resurrection, changes our view of history. Okay, It changes our view of history. And I want you, if you you have a Bible, turn uh, back and look at verse 3 of chapter 15. 
Okay, go back early to the beginning of the chapter, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible, again, I'll put it up on the screens. The writer of this letter to the Corinthians, his name is Paul, uh, often referred to as the Apostle Paul. He starts off this chapter, chapter 15, by grounding the doctrine of the resurrection in reality, not symbol. Okay, And he says in verse 3, he says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Uh, importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas which is the Aramaic name for one of the disciples whose name was Peter but he appeared uh, he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12 the 12 disciples okay after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Again, a euphemism for death. Some have died. Most are still living. though. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared to me also. Okay, so as I said, Paul is wanting to ground the resurrection into reality in such a way that it can never be used as just a symbol. He doesn't want to give us that option, though. Oh, you can just think about it as a symbol. No, he wants you to understand it happened. And it's like this dividing edge. I mean, it's like either you believe it or you don't, but it happened, okay? And what I want you to understand is that Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians. He writes this only 20 years after the death and the resurrection of Christ. And by the way, no one really disagrees with the dating of that letter. So he's writing it only 20 years later, okay? The events that he's writing about only happened 20 years before this letter. So it would be like it would be like me writing about something today that happened back in 1995, okay? So for Paul to make a statement that 500 people saw Jesus Christ raised from the dead only 20 years after it happened, it means that there were many people still around who claimed to have seen Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And there's no way that Paul could have gotten away with that unless there were indeed still hundreds of those people who had seen Christ. So look, so think of it this way. If it were just the 12 disciples, if it were just the 12 disciples, the 12 closest to Jesus, right? If it were just them who came along and said, hey, we've seen the Lord, he's risen, he's been raised from the dead. Uh, the average skeptic would say, well, of course you guys would say that. I mean, seriously. I mean, that's, that's the way for you to keep your movement going, even though he's really dead. I mean, it's the, way, it's, it's the way for you to keep your power, to keep your institution, right? I mean, that's what, that's what the average skeptic would say. But when 500 people showed up and said, no, no, we saw him too. Imagine the impact of that. See, the fact that there's so many people uh, blows away the idea that some people propose that the resurrection was some kind of, uh, like, mass uh, hallucination, right? Like, 500 people don't have a hallucination all at once, unless you're at Woodstock, uh, or Burning Man, or Coachella, or, or, or whatever. But even then, it's not the same hallucination that they're all having. They're all having different hallucinations, right? So 500 people couldn't do that at one time. It's, it, also, it also blows away the notion that the resurrection was like a conspiracy. Because 500 people are too big of a group 
uh, to keep a conspiracy or a hoax together. Somebody would rat, right? I mean, especially 20 years later, right? I mean, you can't find 500 people who could all keep a secret like that for 20 years. I'm not, I'm not even sure you could find one that could do that, but certainly not 500 people who could keep a secret like that for 20 years. By the way, off the subject, okay? This is always, this is always my problem with people who have these government conspiracy theories. Because there are all these people, that, like, like they believe that our government somehow pulled off these big conspiracies like the assassination of JFK and like uh, extraterrestrial aliens landing somewhere and like dope in the hood or whatever. Because here's my question. When has our government ever demonstrated their ability to keep a secret? When? When have they ever done that? Huh? So I, 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 tell you, I tell you something. You know, see, it's, it's too big. Stuff always leaks. And I'll just give you an example of this. Um, a number of years ago, well, wait, 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 wait. I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can tell this story. Uh, I'm serious, serious. I don't know if I can tell. I've got, I got to think about this for a second. Um, can we, uh, is there a way to pause the recording back there? And, and then, seriously, can we pause it? And then I'll tell and tell that story because Secret Service is in enough trouble anyway. They wouldn't want to hear that, okay? I don't want to get the guy fired. All right. In like manner, 500 people couldn't have kept the hoax together for 20 years without someone blowing the whistle on it, okay? And you see, what I want you to understand is that this, this changes the way that we look at history because suddenly we begin to see why Christianity spread so explosively in the earliest days and even turned the mighty Roman Empire upside down. Do you really think that the gospel would have spread like lightning if the first Easter sermons said, well, you know, look, like the resurrection, it didn't really happen But what really matters is that it's a symbol of hope. Like when the acorn falls on the ground, there's always a tree that comes. And after the dead of winter, there's always the new life of spring. Do you really think that that message would have turned the Roman Empire upside down? Of course not. Of course not. No. The reason the gospel spread, the reason Christianity ever got off the ground was that over 500 people got together and said, it happened, the resurrection happened. Someone took on death single-handedly and won. And we have seen him with our own eyes. Can you feel the sharp edge of the resurrection? You see, the doctrine of the resurrection has never been a comforting symbol. Never. It's always been an in-your-face, in-your-teeth, split-people-down-the-middle confrontation with reality, not just wishful thinking. It's always been that. And so it changes the way that we look at history. But here's, here's the other thing, the second thing that I want to get to here this morning, is that the Apostle Paul is not just claiming that the resurrection was a watershed moment in human history. He's also claiming that, it was a, that it's, it's a watershed mo- moment and, and a linchpin of cosmic history. And that's the second implication of the resurrection that I want you to hear this morning. That the doctrine of the resurrection changes cosmic history. It changes cosmic history. And here's what I mean by that. Okay? Go back again to verse 3. Let me just re- refresh your memory on verse 3. 
Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, it's, it's very, uh, very rare that Paul ever talks about the resurrection uh, without also talking about the death of Christ. And you see that here in, in this passage. He, he says he died, he was buried, and he was raised. And the reason that he does this, the reason that these two things go together, is because he wants us to understand that the resurrection was not just like some magic trick. It wasn't just some uh, special effect. Instead, he wants us to understand that the resurrection is just as important for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins, for your acceptance with God, as the cross of Jesus Christ, the death that he died on the cross. They go together. And here's the best way that I can think to explain why these things go together so, uh, so well, why it's so important that you keep the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ together. Um, anybody here uh, ever use Evernote? Anybody here use Evernote? Raise your hand. Okay. Not many of you. I'm going to evangelize you this morning uh, to use Evernote. You're going to thank me. I am an Evernote freak. Uh, I try these days to digitize everything in my life, including all of my receipts. So like I buy something at a Home Depot, uh, I have them send me the receipt by email, and then I send it straight to my Evernote account, which I can do because I've set my Evernote account up uh, with its own special email address and so my receipts just go right there. It's so perfect that it almost brings me to tears as I think about it. <laughs> I get work done on my car, boom, receipt, take a picture, email it to my Evernote account. I buy my wife a gift, take a picture of, of the receipt, email it straight to my Evernote account. You know why I do that? Because I know she's going to return it. That's why. And if she returns it, she's going to need a receipt. Okay? Uh, so they're going to ask her, they say, how do we know that you bought this here? And she can say triumphantly, because my husband kept it in Evernote. And if I'm there, I just give the cashier a knowing nod. Okay? Here's the thing. How do you know that Jesus really died for your sins? Okay. Uh, how do you know that he paid it all? Well, you know he paid the penalty. You know that he paid the debt. Because he's alive. Therefore, the resurrection is actually God's way of giving us a receipt, stamping it, paid in full across all of history. See, the the resurrection and the death of Christ are together what saves us. Put it this way. It wasn't the death of Christ that transformed the disciples. It wasn't the miracle of Christ that transformed us. Uh, the disciples, or the miracles of Christ. They didn't transform the disciples. It also wasn't Jesus' teaching that transformed the disciples. It wasn't Jesus' birth that transformed the disciples. It wasn't until he was raised from the dead that they understood what all of that meant. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then his death was just a noble example, perhaps, of how to suffer. But if he was raised from the dead, it is proof that his death actually accomplished something. 
It actually finished something. It actually secured something. Therefore, it's not your good works, but his death and resurrection, which has completely fulfilled and satisfied the law of God so that you can be accepted by God. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then he's like every other religion. He's a good teacher who came to tell us how to live and who died nobly. But that's all he is. But if he has been raised from the dead, then he's not just a good teacher. He's the Son of God. You guys, you remember the quote that I read at the very beginning um, from the LA Times columnist? It went like this. Let me, let me read it to you again. Positive thinking may be a quintessential American activity associated with both individual and national success, but is driven by a terrible insecurity, the fear of failure. Uh, Friends, I I want you to understand that fear of failure is at the core of your being. And I want you to understand that that fear of failure will not be placated by wishful thinking. It will not be satiated by any amount of success, no matter how extraordinary that success may be. That fear of failure can only be vanquished by belief in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who on the cross paid for your failure with his life so that you never need to fear failure again. There on the cross, Jesus made it possible for you to never have to validate yourself ever again. To never have to prove yourself worthy to anybody again, even to yourself. To never have to look to your own performance as a measure of your value. Because of the life that Jesus lived and the death that Jesus died, you can put all of those issues to rest by looking to his performance instead of your own and experience a peace at the center of your life that you have never known. And it comes through belief in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you believe, you will find an acceptance there by God that you will never lose. If the resurrection never happened, There's no hope for you, there's no hope for me, and there is no hope for the human race. And Christianity is a sham. But if Christ was raised from the dead, well, if he was raised from the dead, as we say here at City Church, uh, that changes everything. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we confront the reality of your resurrection from the dead this morning. We thank you for the sharp edge of the truth, the doctrine of the resurrection. That it doesn't leave us uh, with just wishful thinking about hope, but that it actually grounds our hope in reality. Lord, I I feel certain that there are people here this morning... um, Perhaps have never known that you know there there were over five hundred people that saw you, Lord Jesus, alive after you had been crucified on the cross. Perhaps they've never considered that before. 
Perhaps they've always thought of resurrection as just a symbol, or maybe they just think of Easter as something you have to do. It's Sunday morning, you know, it's once a year, we go to church, whatever. But I pray that today, that through the power of your Spirit, that you would make the significance and the power of the doctrine of the resurrection very real to them today, and that they would understand that it's, a, well, it's an either-or proposition. You either believe in it or you don't, but it's not just a symbol. It's more than that. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you today as a risen Savior. We exalt you as a risen Savior. And we believe that the fact that you are risen changes everything. It changes history. It changes our lives. It changes how we look at other people's lives. And it even changes cosmic history. And so we worship you this morning, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.